0: All right, we are in the middle of a series called Free to Be Free. And we're learning about how we are free in Christ. And we are totally free in Christ, but typically when we think, I am totally free, we tend to get up on our high horses and we think about all the things that I can do because I'm totally free in Christ. And in reality, when we say free to be free, that freedom comes with much responsibility, and what we have to do is we have to often set aside our will, the things we want, the things we have the right to do for the sake of others and their consciences. So today we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to begin by uh, talking about a guy named James Smith. James Smith uh, wrote these two books up here. He is a professor at Southern Seminary. He wrote the book called Desiring the Kingdom and You Are What You Love, and look at what he says here. He says, our heart's desires are shaped and molded by the habit-forming practices in which we participate daily. Let me say that again. Our heart's desires are shaped and molded by the habit-forming practices in which we participate daily. In other words, the, the things that we worship daily eventually shape our hearts. So our desires are shaped and transformed by by your habits, your actions, and your relationships. You might think that there's something that you do in your life that has a very neutral effect on you, but your actions have this shaping effect on your life, and you're gonna find out you are what you love. About a month ago, our uh, our life group went to lunch. We went to lunch at a local sports bar. We got there a little bit after 12, but by one o'clock There was no doubt about it. We weren't just in a sports bar. We were in a Green Bay Packer sports bar. (laughs) Everybody had on the jerseys. The colors came out. Every time they scored a a touchdown, there was a celebration. I mean, it was a worship experience. In fact, one of the people in our group said, wow, these people really know how to worship. There was fellowship when they came in. They greeted one another just like we did. There was celebration. There were times of reverence and prayer. (laughs) They were worshiping. But in fact, we would say they're worshiping or looking for something to give them a satisfaction in their heart that only God was designed to do. I love the Green Bay Packers. But the Green Bay Packers can't satisfy my inner needs idols are anything created by God that we seek for our happiness our meaning or our identity idols can be a lot of good things listen to some of these things that are idols but most of these are good things our possessions can become our idols a cause can become our idols our career our family marriage or not being married Our bank account, our work, our independence, politics. This year is going to be one of those years where you have a tendency to put your trust in the United States of America. It can become an idol. Sports, the approval of others, romance, there's so many other things. John Calvin, who was a uh, pastor during the 1600s, he said this. The human heart is an idol factory. If you're an idol worshiper, raise your hand. All right, every hand should be up. I'm going to put two up, okay? We all worship idols, and our heart continually creates those idols. These created things have become ultimate things. In fact, I heard a little axiom that it helps me remind mind myself of whether something is becoming an idol. You can write this down if you want. It's a good way to think about it. When a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. So you have to ask yourself, is this good thing in my life, my family or my, my child getting into that college? That's a good thing. I want my child to go to that college. But when that thing, that good thing, becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. In chapter 10, Paul continues his argument from chapter 9. By the way, Danny, you did just a great job on that. Danny laid this out. But in chapter 10, he's discussing how we exert our personal rights, often without thinking of other people. And that can not only lead to those with weaker consciences being led into sin, but our very rights can become our idols. So today we're going to look at the first 22 verses of chapter 10. And if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank... From the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was christ nevertheless with most of them god was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Please pray with me. Fathers, we come today. I ask you that your spirit would come. That your spirit would open our minds, open our hearts. May your spirit help me to speak your very words that your truth may may sink home, may change us, may remind us. I ask you, Father, to put your finger on those things in our life that we have raised up to an ultimate thing. Father, come speak to us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Please keep your finger there in uh, chapter 10. We're going to be looking around, moving, moving around a lot today. Um, today we want to learn to flee from idols and we're going to do that by looking at, first of all, our example in history, secondly, our experience in life, and finally, our ultimate escape through Jesus Christ. So let's look, first of all, at our example in history. I don't know if you noticed at the beginning, but in this passage, Paul is comparing two histories, he's comparing the Israelite history and the Corinthian believers history both histories now speak about God delivering his people the Israelites were being delivered from Egypt the Corinthians were being delivered from a life of sin and ultimate death both histories speak about how God has sustained his people the Israelites uh, were, were given literal food and also spiritual food as they wandered around the desert the Corinthians we're given spiritual food through the Lord's Supper. Both histories also show how God's people, despite God delivering them and, and providing for them, they were still drawn to worship other gods or idols. So look at verse 1. He says here, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That's a, a that being baptized, that coming under the, the water, under the cloud, under the sea, is an idea of baptism. And all ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Now I want you to understand, first of all, this is not literal, that there was a rock that rolled along after them, okay? The rock was Jesus Christ. And the idea of the rock is rock, for them, you know, they often say things like, God is my rock. He's, he's solid. He's something I can depend on. The rock followed them in the idea that God continually, through Jesus Christ, went with them and provided for them. But look at what it says. In verse 5, it says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown, meaning they died in the wilderness. So despite God's deliverance and provision, they responded in ways that did not please God. God was not happy. And then he says in verse 6, He's going to repeat this again in verse 11, but he says, these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. In other words, these stories that the Israelites went through, did those things really happen? Yes. But these things were written down so you and I might not desire evil as they did. They failed to look to Christ as we often fail to do. They displeased God and they became idolatry, idolaters, which is a sin. Next, next uh, Paul goes through several examples here describing what their sin was like. I don't know if you've ever seen this verse in 1 uh, John chapter 2. Look at this. This is a way of describing sin. It uses three broad categories for sin. And it really it mirrors what happens here. But look at what this verse says. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here's these three categories of sin. The desires of the flesh. That's everything from sexual desires. I just want to sleep a couple more hours. I need my second and third helping of food. All those those desires that enter our basic, our bodily hungers that we have. And the desires of the eyes. They got a brand new car. I want a new car. They live in that neighborhood. I want to live in that. They got into that college. Ooh, i All those things that we say, God hasn't provided well for me because other people have something better. The desires of our eyes. And then the last one he calls the pride in possessions. Now this isn't pride in that, hey, I've got these things. It's the pride in that, uh, another version says the boastful pride of life. It's me saying, hey, everything I got, I got because I did it. I did the hard work. I went to college. God hasn't gotten anything from me. It's all what I have done. You hear that boastful pride there? So you can categorize all these things. They're not from the Father, but they're from the world. Now let's look back here and see how these things are characterized here. The first example, verse 7, he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. The story he's referring to here is the children of Israel have come out of Egypt. They've been rescued miraculously. The Egyptians died in the sea. They traveled down to a place called Mount Sinai. Moses has said, God has called me up on the mountain. He wants to speak to me. So Moses go up on the, goes up on the mountain. He's up there for a long time. And the people don't have a lot to do. And they just get in their own way. They say, let us, let us make an image So they created a golden calf. And it's interesting, if you read the story, they said, we're going to worship this golden calf because this calf has brought us deliverance out of Egypt. Now think about that. They just went through this, you know, the ten plagues, the firstborn dying, all those things, God rescuing them. And they didn't just leave Egypt. They left Egypt rich. The people were throwing riches at them. So they left They're they're saved through the Red Sea. And then they go down and create a calf and start to worship it. This is their pride in their possessions, their boastful pride that, look, we're smart enough to worship this calf who has provided deliverance for us. The next example, verse 8, it says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell on a single day. This is a story that comes from Numbers 25. Now, the interesting thing about this is they've been wandering for 40 years in the desert. Look around this room. Everybody, 20 years or older, if you were Egyptian back then, we were going to die. You know, I look at my buddy Brian. I say, Brian, you know, we're going to be killed here during these 40 years. Be some of these young folks that will hang around. But eventually, you know, you look around, and you go, hey, there's only a few left, and I'm one of them. and God's going to take me home. So, 40 years go by, they're getting ready to enter the land, okay? They're on the precipice, getting ready to look into the land, and they start looking at some of the local women. And they start intermarrying, and the uh, local women start getting them into worshiping Baal, another idol. So, due to their sexual immorality, they're torn away. even after 40 years of watching their friends die in the desert. The third example, that's obviously the lust of the flesh. The third example is the desires of the eyes. It said we must, this is verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This is a story where they grumbled. They weren't happy. They said, we want water. God gave them water. We want meat. God gave them meat. But they were never happy. They constantly grumbled. So God said, I'm tired of this. He sent fiery serpents. Uh, through the camp they started biting people people were dying God said and, and he, he was ready to kill them all and Moses intervened and God said Moses put an image of a serpent up on a staff and when the people look at that they will be saved and it kind of foreshadows we look to the one who was killed on the cross as our salvation so so The Corinthians, they were falling in these same things. They didn't like Paul's leadership. We saw that in uh, chapter 9. They grumbled. Instead of being thankful for his teaching and his guidance, they whined and complained. And Paul reminds them again in verse 11. He says, now these things happen as an example, but they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So these examples is the word typos. It's types examples. These are stories that are actually happened, but they're written for you. If you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 3. Let's look at these a little bit closer. When I first saw this, boy, it just made so much sense to me. Exodus chapter 3. This is the story where God appears to Moses. And God's getting ready to call Moses out of the burning bush. But look at the wording here. Exodus chapter 3, there's there's a bush on fire. Verse 3, Moses said, I'm going to turn aside to see this great sight that the bush has not burned. He walks over there and the Lord says to them, says to him, he says, "Uh, Moses, Moses. Moses is overwhelmed by God's glory and holiness. He takes off his sandals. Verse 6, God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob so he's telling Moses listen I'm the same God that your forefathers worshiped Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God then look at the wording here this is so unique verse 7 then the Lord said I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters I know their sufferings I have come down you notice that God says I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a land good and broad, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 9, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Now, come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. This is a picture of us in salvation. In fact, we could change the scriptures here a little bit and put our name in here. You could say, back in verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my son John, put your name there, who is in slavery to sin. I have heard his cry because of his difficult taskmaster, sin. I know his sufferings, and I have come down to deliver him out of sin and to bring him into a good and broad place. Verse 9, And now, behold, the cry of John has come to me, and I have seen his oppression with sin. Come, I'm sending you. Now, God actually did come down in the form of Jesus Christ. But doesn't he do the same to us? He comes down. He sees our oppression and sin. He rescues us. And then he, just like he tells Moses, he tells you and I, now go. You go and talk to that neighbor of yours, that co-worker. Why? Because I'm coming down to rescue them too. It's an exact picture of life for us. After this, they're wandering in the desert. They're starting to grumble. And God says, you want bread? I'm going to give you bread. It's going to be called heavenly bread. We're going to call it manna. It's going to come down every day. And every day you're going to see the provision of the Lord. So you go out every day and you collect the manna that you need for you and your family that day. But guess what? Don't collect two days. Because if you collect two days, it's going to spoil. You come every day and collect it. It's a picture of us. Every day I have to go to Jesus Christ. For me, this usually starts, not every day, because some days I don't wake up too awake. But often, I'll wake up, and I did this today, and I said, uh, you know, you're sitting there, you're, you're, you're arguing with your brain whether to get out of bed or whether to stay in bed, and finally you realize I, I'm not going to go back to sleep. But somewhere in that time, I say, okay, God, you've given me another day here. God, I'm so prone to look at other things. Remind me today to come to you for my provision. My wife's not going to meet all my needs. My church is not going to meet. You you know, God, there are so many things I look to to supply my needs, but only you can supply those needs. Give me what I need today. Now, guess what? Tomorrow morning when I wake up, I can't go, okay, God, thanks for speaking to me yesterday. I'm just going to coast today. I collected enough yesterday. This is all going to be fine and good. I can just kind of coast with Jesus today. And Jesus says, no, no, you got to come to me today. You need your manna today. You need the bread today, relying on me and trusting in me. You can't wait and rest on those other things. Eventually, God takes them into the promised land. This is a picture of of us living the, the, the Christian life with God as our king. We're living, even in a sense, right now, in the promised land. Now, someday we'll go to the promised land of heaven, but right now, even now, it's like, God, you are my king. What do you want me to do today? All of this is a picture. And the other thing that's interesting, if you think about Paul, when Paul's writing this, he doesn't have a New Testament. He doesn't have well, he actually is writing 1 Corinthians right now, as he's reading you know. He doesn't have a New Testament. He's looking back to the Old Testament alone, which in a way, it's it's Paul affirming that the Old Testament is God's word. Sometimes we have this attitude like, well, there's some good stories there, but really the New Testament's where we need to camp out. And it's all God's story. He's just showing us where Christ comes in in the Old Testament. So to summarize, Paul calls on them to ultimately stop participating in these temple feasts with, demon, we, uh, with demons. We know that these idols are not real gods but they have the potential to lead you and I and those with weaker convictions into idol worship just like we see in the Israelites' history and in our own history. So that's our example from history. Let's look at our experience in life. Verse 11. These things happen to them as an example, but they're written down for our instruction. Do you notice the shift there from them to our Paul's providing a much larger framework for understanding how you and I make wise choices within all the decisions that come up in the normal grind of everyday life. Idolatry happens in normal life. It's in the day-to-day decisions. We're tempted to, uh, to excuse idol worship as something that really just doesn't pertain to us. That's something that you know people who aren't as smart as us, as sophisticated as us, You know, those are the kind of people that worship idols. We don't. We're intelligent people. We're Americans, for goodness sake. Right? We have that pride, don't we? Dick Keyes, who's a pastor, says this. Idol worship is the main category that describes unbelief. Think about that. When you worship an idol, you're basically saying, God, I don't believe in you. I believe in this thing, this activity, this person, more than I believe in you. It's the idea that's highly sophisticated. It's drawing together the complexities of motivation in our individual psychology, the things that motivate you. It involves your social environment. You know, everybody else is getting this. Why shouldn't I get it? It's also the unseen world. Idols are not just on pagan altars, but in well educated human hearts and minds the Bible does not allow us to marginalize to set to the side to the fringes of life idolatry it's found on center stage we are all idol worshipers most of us sadly don't even know this is happening I mean we don't say you know right now in my life I want this thing more than I want Jesus but what we say to ourselves is you know I want Jesus and this because this satisfies something in my heart well how how do we identify our idols how can we as individuals put our finger you may you may already have an idea that this this thing or these things are, are idols for me but let me give you some questions to ask to help you identify some of your idols what do you daydream about What's the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning and the last thing you think about when you go to bed at night? Maybe you buy magazines about it, you know. I know a guy who was into boating oh, he's always looking at boats. Maybe it's a car, a truck, those things that are, are, we, we're, we're daydreaming about, we're captivated about. Or do you hear yourself saying, you know, if I only had this, I'd be happy. Or, if only I were like this. You know, I remember when I was younger, you know what I wanted to be more than anything? You're going to laugh. I wanted to be taller. <laughs> and now that I'm tall, it's hard to buy, buy clothes that fits this body. It just don't make clothes. That, you know, all of you normal height people, you know, I, the world caters to you. It doesn't cater to me. It's hard. But I remember thinking, if I was just tall, then it was if I could just shoot a shoot a jump shot, if I could just date that girl, if I could just graduate from college. Those idols change throughout our life. So what's your desire pointing at? That's your idol or idols. And what happens is living like this creates this double life for us where we try to follow God and the other where we try to serve and please ourselves. You know the story in the Old Testament where Jacob goes to find a wife He meets Rachel, and he goes, whoa, that girl looks good. I'm going to marry her. So he goes to her dad, and her dad says, okay, you can have, I'll give you a wife after you work for seven years. So he works for seven years, and he doesn't give him Rachel. He gives him Leah, the older sister. And he says, okay, you work seven more years, I'll give you Rachel. But he actually gives them both. He's he's co-opted for 14 total years to get these two wives. Well, then what happens with these wives is, Leah is very fertile. She starts popping out kids like that. I mean, she's got four kids before Rachel has one. Rachel is so aggravated. She's so mean. They, 14 years are finally done. They get ready to leave. Rachel goes in and steals her dad's household idols, hides them away in her backpack, and they take off. But even though she took these physical idols, that's not what she was worshiping. We saw what she was worshiping long before that where she says this to her husband. She said, give me a child or I shall die. That reveals her heart. In other words, this is what makes me important. This is what sets me apart. I need to have a child. That was her idol. It wasn't these, these physical idols she, she stole. So her wrong desire, her wrong worship, her wrong commitment and preoccupation was striving to find meaning in her life through having children. That's what her identity and purpose in life was wrapped up in. And listen, and this is so important, our scripture today tells us that we have the same propensity. Think about this, and I'm talking to the church crowd here. You guys are here today, right? We tend to think the idol worshippers are those outside, but let me tell you this. We can have a life that's shaped by the gospel. We can regularly participate in worship. We can even come and regularly participate in the Lord's Supper, serve in the church, and yet we can still be controlled by idols. So don't think just because I'm doing all these things, I'm right. Many of us, most of us, all of us, and I include myself in this, are in adulterous Relationships. And I use that word on purpose. You don't see yourself as, as having adultery, of cheating on your marriage vows, but we are. We're cheating. We're having adulterous relationships against God. Now you may say, but wait a minute, John. Come on, that's harsh. That, that's not me. Well, look at what he says in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. This is talking about you and me. How then can we escape this this grasp of idols that have crept into our lives, into our hearts, right at our, our every normal, everyday living? Let's look at our escape from idolatry. The thing you have to remember is Jesus meets us at the level of our desires. He meets us in the ordinary. He understands us and our need for rescue. Verse 13 says this, "No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man." In other words, don't think that you're different, that you're so special. This temptation is out of out of categories. No. We're all facing the same stuff, right? We're in the same soup together. But here's the most important part. God is faithful. God's faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So when you say, oh, this is too much, I can't handle it, I might as well give in to the temptation. No, no. It's not too much. God gives you a way of escape. With the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. God faithfully gives us a way out of each and every temptation. He doesn't take the temptation away. Hey, pray for it. But that's not a prayer he normally answers. (laughs) But you can pray that you see the way of escape and the grace to endure it. The idea of endure up here is to bear up underneath this weight. So this temptation, whatever it is, this weight that's weighing you down, God will give you the strength to bear up underneath it. He also gives us the ultimate escape from temptation and sin through Jesus Christ. Jesus meets us in the ordinary decisions of life. He gives us a way of escape. And Jesus actually understands each and every one of our desires because he's experienced them all. Sometimes you say, well, he was never married. He's never had kids but he does. He understands better than actually we do everything that we've gone through or will go through. He's wrestled with each and every desire and has never let it become an idol. He was sinless. He never caved into idolatry. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We can confidently go go to him, him because of the grace he offers. And we can find mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Remember, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And grace is getting so much more than we deserve. So with this in mind, Paul commands the Christians there to flee from idolatry. Listen to the wording here in these verses. Listen to the wording of unity here. Our unity with one another and with Jesus Christ. Verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved. Notice he says, my beloved. He doesn't say, hey, you all that are not obeying. He says, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Interesting, I was thinking about this, and I could be wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong, but there's only two things God ever tells us, two sins that God ever tells us to flee from in Scripture. He says, flee from sexual immorality and flee from idolatry. There's a point there. He says, don't sit around and contemplate it in your head and try to reason your way out of it. He says, get out of the way. Flee from idolatry. Verse 15, I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Look at the unity here. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, and we all partake of the one bread. The word participation there means fellowship. It's the Greek word koinia. You've heard that word before. We participate or fellowship in the bread, the wine, the body and the blood of Jesus. So we participate or share in the benefits of Christ's death when we come to the table. Well, what are some of those benefits? We participate in forgiveness. We participate in grace. We participate in acquittal. We don't stand condemned before God. The unity represented in the Lord's Supper represents the reality of the one body of Christ. We're united to one another because we're united to Christ. And it's Jesus' way of reminding us that we're forgiving. He's not holding his sins or our sins against us. He stepped in and he paid the price for our sin. That's good news. We need to remember that. Paul next reminds them that as they exert their personal rights in eating food sacrificed to idols, they're actually putting themselves in danger. Verse 20 he says, No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to participate with demons. So we may think, Oh, it's not really an idol, but he's saying there's something spiritually happening there, and you need to protect yourself. Verse 22, he says, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Shall we continue in this idol worship, these, these uh, feasts uh, with food sacrificed to idols, even though we know idols aren't real? No, we're participating with demons. He says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So participating in those sacrifices caused them to participate with demons. And Paul warns them, like he said right there in verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? This kind of reminds us, goes back to those examples he gave earlier. Don't be like the Israelites and do what they did, is what he's saying. So what's the bottom line? Jesus provides the way of escape. He always provides the way of escape from our idolatry, from our adultery. And here's the good news. And don't if you miss anything today, don't miss this. Jesus, and listen to my wording here. My wording's specific. Jesus overcomes our adultery with his fidelity. You hear that? Jesus overcomes our adulterous hearts with his fidelity, his faithfulness. We must remember the gospel and continue to place our trust in the fidelity of Christ. In the faithfulness of Christ, not our faithfulness to Christ. You're going to mess up. So don't, don't bank everything on my faithfulness to Christ. No, you bank everything on Christ's faithfulness. He is faithful even when we are not faithful. And even in our unfaithfulness, Jesus Christ shows us such compassion. Take a look at this picture here. This guy's Jonathan Edwards. In my opinion, the greatest preacher in the history of the United States of America. And he died before we even became a nation. But he lived and preached in the Boston area for years. Listen to what he says here. Christ is the creator. His wisdom is perfect. His power is infinite. His riches are immense and inexhaustible. His majesty is infinitely awful. I like that phrase. What does that mean, that his majesty is infinitely awful? Well, if you read anything about Jonathan Edwards, when he looks at the majesty of God, his glory, and all that he is. Jonathan, is what, he, what he's saying is, I'm overwhelmed by my sinfulness in light of God's majesty. And there's an awfulness there, because I realize I'm not like you. He goes on, he says, and yet, he is one of infinite compassion. No one is so low or inferior, but Christ's compassion is sufficiently to take gracious notice of them. So you may think God doesn't see, God sees. He sees it all, and he has compassion on you. He shows compassion not only to the angels, humbling himself to behold the things that are done in heaven. Stop there. When we think, we think, here we are. Here's heaven, here's the angels, and God's right there too, right? What does he say here? He says, God shows compassion not only on the uh, to the angels, humbling himself to behold the creatures the things that are done in heaven. So think about that. Here's you and I. Here's heaven and the angels. And God is way up there, and I'm not tall enough to reach that high. And God humbles himself to look in on what happens, the things done in heaven. We have a tendency to bring God down to our level, and yet the reality is we can't push God up high enough above us. He also shows compassion to such poor creatures as men. And not only so as to take notice of princes and great men, he doesn't just notice the people in power, the movers and shakers in the world, but he notices those who are of meanest rank and degree, the poor of the world. In reality, we have ourselves and we tend to think of those other people down here, right? but in reality, we're, we're the meanest in rank and degree if we want to be office, honest about it. Whatever temptation you're facing today, whatever idols you're struggling with, Jesus Christ not only meets your need, but he is what you need. Thomas Brooks was a pastor in England in the 1600s. This is what he says, and I'm going to end with this. We have all things in Christ, and Christ is all things to a Christian. If we be sick, he is a physician. If we thirst, he is a fountain. If our sins trouble us, he is righteousness. If we stand in need of help, he is mighty to save. If we fear death, He is life. If we be in darkness, He is light. If we be weak, He is strength. If we be in poverty, He is plenty. And if we desire heaven, He is the way. We need to look to Jesus Christ. Go to Him first before we try to manufacture all the things in our head and our heart to satisfy our needs. Let's pray.